from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. It is a critical moment. If we do not act with urgency, we would then severely undermine the liberal order. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. The wind is back in Europe's sights. We have now a window of opportunity, but it will not stay open forever. Hi, you're listening to the CER podcast with me, Beth Oppenheim, and today I have with me John Springford, the CER's Deputy Director. Hi, John. Hi, Beth. So Brexiteers argue that leaving the EU will lead to a prosperous UK unshackled from the meddling EU, off striking trade agreements far and wide. The Conservatives have always liked to depict themselves as the grown-up party, the safe pair of hands for the economy, but it now really seems indisputable that leaving the EU is going to make Britain worse off. Even Philip Hammond has said so himself. The UK economy will grow uh, outside the European Union, um, but the economy will be, in, in, uh, in any of these scenarios, a little bit smaller than it would have been if we'd remained inside the European Union. So today you're bringing us and our listeners your latest calculations on the cost of Brexit so far, the fourth update. Your last estimate, based on data until September 2018, put the fiscal cost at £320 million a week, or 2.3% of GDP. How are things looking now? Well, things are looking fairly similar, to be honest. The last data we have is until uh, December 2018, i.e. the last quarter of last year. The cost has risen a bit to about um, 2.5% of GDP. The UK had a pretty bad quarter of growth, um, and so that has increased the the cost so far. And the knock-on effect of that onto the public finances has meant that it's gone up to about 360 million a week, which is, you know, it's a bit of a static picture. And basically the story over the entire number of estimates that I've done is that the UK missed out on the sort of global mini-boom, which happened between 2017 and 2018, where we or all of the advanced economies doing better, whereas Brexit appeared to have put a speed limit on the UK's growth, and that's where most of the gap arose. Right, and from this decline, you've drawn in your new insights and political lessons. So you say that, as I think most of us in the UK are aware, Brexit is sucking up the political oxygen right now, and that means that some really important issues are being shunted to the margins. What pressing economic and social issues do you think are going to unfortunately slide to the margins and be ignored by this government? I mean, if you stand back and think about what the most pressing issue is for the UK economy apart from Brexit, it's really about how to deal with an ageing society um, over the long term. We have largely closed the deficit and so the public finances are in a better shape than they were five or six years ago. But there are some big extra spending that's going to have to come down the line and we're going to have to have tax rises to deal with that. Um, Older people need more expenditure on healthcare, they're going to need more expenditure on social care looking after them um, if they're infirm or can't look after themselves. And in order to pay for that, you know, you're going to have to raise taxes um, and that's obviously going to be very difficult. Any kind of attempt to raise taxes requires politicians to expend political capital in the jargon. And the reason why that matters is that older people vote, they want higher spending, they want more healthcare spending, and they also don't want to have tax rises. And, you know, they're the ones that hold an awful lot of the country's wealth, for example, housing wealth. And politicians have a certain amount of capital that they can expend. They get hammered at elections if they annoy too many people, basically. And the Brexit process means annoying a lot of people. And so it's going to be difficult for politicians to annoy extra people by 
increasing taxes. Speaking of raising taxes, you also talk about how slow growth actually creates a more hostile, aggressive, competitive political environment. Why is that? Um, there's a kind of voluminous literature, really, um, that economists and political scientists have put together about this. Um, and so we know quite a lot about it. We know that slow growth tends to lead to more support for radical parties. And it's easy to put together a story about why that is. The point about centrists, you know, the centre left and centre right, is they're supposed to be sensible stewards of the economy. And if they're not managing to deliver higher living standards for people, then a lot of people will start to wander off towards the, the extremes and they might start voting on values issues like immigration or law and order or civil rights and a fairer economy rather than on, you know, does this potential government um, have what's necessary to raise my incomes? Slow growth also means that there's more conflict over tax and spending simply because the government's revenues will be lower than they would if the economy was growing more quickly. Um, and so you have some of the fights that I was talking about earlier um, about raising taxes. And then the last point is that after financial crises, you tend to have an awful lot of radicalisation. And part of the reason for that is that financial crises have very long-lasting effects because a lot of people have built up a lot of debt in the boom years, then everything goes south, and banks and individuals and then eventually governments have to reduce their debt or try and reduce the amount of debt that they're building up and all of that means that the economy is more s slow growing and that period of slow growth tends to be quite long and so if we add Brexit to that problem then I think we are looking at a prolonged period of political instability in the UK. So as well as being an economic failure so far, it's also going to have some really severe political ramifications. Tell me and our listeners is it too late or can the government reverse the damage that it's done? I don't think it's entirely too late. I mean, the order of, you know, the economic priorities here are pretty clear and I'm not going to talk about what the political priorities could be because obviously MPs and politicians have to decide how they're going to trade off the referendum mandate on the one hand and their need to try and secure the economy on the other. But the economic priorities are clear. Remain is the best Staying in the single market but leaving the EU is the next best. Then there's a bit of a jump to a customs union, which is a bit better than a free trade agreement. And then another big jump to no deal, which would be extremely damaging. Let's say that the UK decides it's going to remain somehow. I think we can be pretty clear that investment, which has taken a real hammering, would rise again because we would see sterling appreciate, because we would see people starting to consume again, that we would expect GDP to be higher than would be the case if the UK leaves. But... The problem that the UK faces is that for that to really come back hard, you know, for the economy to come back really well, then the issue has to be settled. You know, mm. there has to be a sense for investors that, OK, I can be fairly sure that trade barriers aren't going to rise between the UK and its largest market. And so then, you know, if I'm an international investor, say a car manufacturer or some other manufacturer who wants to have a plant in the UK, then I might well pick the UK rather than somewhere in the EU27 where these kind of political risks aren't so huge. And I'd just make one point as an example. So Quebec, the province in Canada, had two referendums in the last century on independence. And some economists have done some work on what the impact on investment in Quebec was. And they found that despite the fact that Quebec decided to stay, and that is an issue that's now settled, there was a permanent hit to investment in the province as a result of the political uncertainty that the referendums created. But nevertheless, there would obviously be clear benefits to remaining. It's just that 
you know, we wouldn't have the same benefits as if we had not gone through this process at all. So the damage can be mitigated. Finally, one of your lessons is that people should listen to experts. Might be unsurprising that as an expert yourself, you might say that. But why is it that you think that people, including politicians, should listen to experts like you? Well, I mean, the, the key thing for me is that it's very, very difficult in politics and in social science and, and in think tank land to avoid bias altogether. And we all have our political biases. But the point of trying to get expertise in something is to actually really understand it and try to get rid of your biased opinions. And that's something which, you know, if you really look at the evidence of the relationship between the UK and the EU, at least economically, then it would be very hard for you if you looked at that evidence in an objective manner to claim that Brexit would have economic benefits. And we knew that before the referendum. And I think it's worth just going through some of the claims that Brexit supporting politicians have made and whether they've come true, just as a kind of prompt to try and pay a bit more attention to what the experts were saying. So they said that um, they made the claim that Brexit would lead to economic gains and that has been wrong so far and there's very good reason to believe that it will be wrong in the future mm. they said that german car manufacturers r would ride to the rescue and put pressure on angela merkel to offer the uk a sweetheart deal um, they've been wrong about that they suggested that britain should threaten no deal um, and that would encourage the eu to offer the uk a better deal because they wouldn't want no deal um, they've been proved wrong about yeah, that. Yeah, that went well, didn't it? <laughs> they claimed that the fall in sterling would lead to an export boom. They were wrong. And they said it was simple to roll over the EU's existing trade deals. Also wrong about that. And they claimed that uh, the EU would never shut out the City of London because it was too important to the EU's financial system. And while they've been the least wrong about that one, I think over the long term, they will find that that is not the case. So I just end with a plea, which is really that since they've been so wrong about the majority of things about Brexit that we should take their view that no deal would be fine with a with an awful lot of scepticism. Thanks, John. That was a very impassioned plea from you. And listeners who are interested can find John's full analysis on the CER website. Thanks very much. Thanks, Beth. Bye. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.